This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that talks about all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today with uh, return offenders, Alex Classic and Sam Wilkinson, to talk about hydrogen and batteries. How are both of you? Good. How are you, Phil? I'm doing well. Sam, I assume you're well as too, um, as well. Do, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Hill. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, I well, sure I, if you would. Well, I can't. I mean, that's the so, so the the internal uh, the, the the meeting calendar invite for, for this podcast was Cool Kids podcast uh, because y'all's calendars are absolute murder. But particularly trying to, to to navigate the time zones, Sam in the UK and Alex in Boston. So as much as I would like to get you back, it's been hard. I think we've been trying to line this up for what three or four weeks. Yeah, that's it's right. Only been a minute. I'm glad we can, you know, come in and represent the cool cats. <laughs> and coincidentally, you know, our, our topic here, and this perhaps explains the weakness in your calendar or the weakness and availability of your calendar, batteries and hydrogen seem to have emerged that the, the cool kids in terms of all of the clean tech investment and clean tech headlines and whatever else. Uh, so there's, you know, a, a great synergy there for our conversation. And and I guess, you know, Alex, I'd, I'd like to start with you just because from, from where I saw it, some of the things that I'd like to, to get y'all's thoughts on today are, are how, how to look at batteries and how to look at hydrogen and kind of the, the same, where are they competitors, where where's their opportunity for, for, for both of them together, are, are there regional variation, are there application differences, whether that be mobility or whether that be residential or commercial. And, you know, I, I think what a year or so ago, Alex, the all, all the headlines, um, or there were several headlines around uh, Nikola and, and the application of hydrogen, um, at least to a PowerPoint presentation. But in terms of, you know, hydrogen got more and more mature throughout the year. Batteries, uh, you know, have been around and more mature for a while. But was last year the, the big kind of, uh, I guess, the, the opening up of, of hydrogen to, to more of mainstream and a, a kind of a solidifying of hydrogen as a clean tech opportunity? Uh, yeah, I would say so. You know, it's kind of the uh, debutante year for hydrogen. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of end-use technologies that have really come to the forefront, particularly in heavy-duty trucking applications. Um, but really, I think that there's been like a mindset shift in the public perception of hydrogen. And it's kind of where, you know, wind and solar were maybe five years ago, where people were coming to grips with how might we use this technology in the broader energy infrastructure? And then, you know, what potential limitations might there be? And I think that, you know, batteries kind of went through the same cycle, I don't know, maybe two, three, four, five years ago. Um, and, and hydrogen is currently, you know, at the, at the top of it right now. So I, I think that people are really uh, you know, thinking a lot more about it and, and just kind of understanding how it might be used a bit more. And so we're hearing about it a lot in the headlines. And, and Sam, on the other side of batteries, batteries was the, the, the star child for you know quite some time. Um, but as evidenced by your lack of calendar 
space to uh, maybe just blocked it out so you don't have to talk to me, but <laughs> you seem to be <laughs> quite busy that there's plenty of conversation around batteries as well, that, that all this enthusiasm for hydrogen isn't taking anything away from batteries. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, you definitely, you know, me and the team that I work with spend so much time now answering questions for clients around the topic of batteries, um, anything from supply and demand concerns to technology evolution. Uh, and I guess the unique thing about batteries in the clean tech space is that, well, I guess here, it depends whether we define EVs as the same thing or not, right? But, you know, in the power sector, obviously, batteries means batteries connected to the grid to, to help integrate renewables and things like that. But, you know, the fact is right now that's about 5% of battery demand and 90% of it is going into electric vehicles over the next 10 years. And so big, big challenges around actually securing supply of batteries for the power sector, but at the same time benefiting massively from huge global investment in validating, improving the technology, driving down costs. So it's a super complex thing. And yeah, we spend a lot of time helping clients to understand that. So how should we look at it? Alex, you mentioned you know hydrogen as having particular you know application in long haul transportation obviously batteries seem to be you know having more of a place perhaps in short haul transportation are, are they competing for the same customers in the same market or are they completely different technologies that can grow it you know beside each other well you know so in the light duty realm I, I would say that the like Toyota Mirais of the world are definitely trying to compete with the Teslas and light duty battery electric vehicles um and it's it's very much a kind of like a mid to high you know sticker price car you know fifty sixty thousand dollars per vehicle um but the real opportunity for fuel cell electric vehicles to shine is in heavy duty vehicle markets right batteries are heavy and they take a while to charge and if you have a truck whose purpose is to either transport heavy loads uh, or provide power on site then a battery is probably not going to be the best situated uh, application for it right and so there is a lot of room for fuel cell electric vehicles in this particular realm and there's a lot of regulatory drivers too. Uh, not only are there people's ambitions for greenhouse gas reductions, but places like the Port of Los Angeles have uh, very ambitious nitrogen oxide reduction goals. And you really can't get there without zero emission vehicles. And so as these regulations take hold, not only across America, but uh, across the globe as well, uh, we can see a large opportunity for fuel cell electric vehicles. And our mobility and energy futures team has just put out a new zero emission vehicle watch report where we've significantly increased our demand outlook for these vehicles when we think about our outlook for 2050. But there's great complementarity between both technologies, right? Like think about how many different types of cars and trucks you see out there on the road. They all have different applications and purposes. And, uh, you know, the idea that there's any one all of the above technology solution to any one of these use categories really, you know, I, I don't think so. I think that there'll be a blend of both technologies moving forward. How about commercially? I mean, the, it, it seems that that hydrogen you, you said five years back uh, i think earlier just kind of spitballing last year was also kind of the, the big coming out party for, for tesla at least on an equity basis and you know electric vehicles have become that much more mainstream in, in terms of new sales and in terms of you know just cars on the road hydrogen is are we 
close to that point? Well, first we have to let the battery electric vehicles become <laughs> victims of their own success, right? So as we get more and more of these vehicles on the road, they're going to run into growth pains, right? The the grid is massive and uh, robust, but uh, it's also strained at times, right? And at times where you might want a reliable backup where the grid might go down or other issues arise, uh, fuel cell electric vehicles offer a decarbonized opportunity there. But it's really about the use cases more than the growing pains, right? And also the regulatory drivers. You, you People have a great deal with the current internal combustion engine, right? They're reliable and they're affordable, and it will take an impetus to move them to another technology. So governments around the world are looking at how do we provide the incentives to get individual drivers to switch over and also to establish the infrastructure that's going to refuel these vehicles um, because that's the Achilles heel, right? Everywhere in America, you can go and plug an electric vehicle into a wall and it will charge, uh, you know, uh, at whatever rate it can. Hydrogen vehicles, there's like 50, 60 hydrogen refueling stations that are predominantly in California right now. And you could go to more if you were able to like use specialty warehouses where they use you know fuel cell forklifts but you really can't drive them across the nation and and that's the hurdle that fuel cell electric vehicles need to get over in order to see wider spread adoption and that was a hurdle for cng as well right that i'm not sure was really successfully overcome yeah yeah and actually they're you know, their, their ambitions to try and reuse a fair amount of that CNG infrastructure. And it's it's really a fascinating market, right? So CNG is uh, predominantly fed by renewable natural gas, uh, natural gas that's made from like dairy digesters or landfill gas that's then captured and upgraded. And due to the renewable fuel standard or California low carbon fuel standards, uh, these molecules can be really lucrative from a credit standpoint. And so people that are producing renewable natural gas are very interested in using hydrogen fuel cell vehicles as another outlet for their RNG output because the CNG fleets are kind of fading away over time. And, and Sam, from the perspective of batteries, is hydrogen use and mobility at all a perceived threat or is the use case just that much different? I mean, I personally feel like the electric vehicle revolution has gone so revolution, maybe not the right term, uh, movement has gone so far now and is so heavily backed by policy and regulation and the major automotive companies that are the sort of household names are so invested that there's really sort of no path back from electric mobility taking over in the personal car, light vehicle, whatever you want to call it, space, right? You know, if I look at the investments from, you know, just in the last few months in like battery manufacturing in the US, like joint ventures between major like Asian battery manufacturers and you know, Stellantis, General Motors, Ford, um, all look into get into the battery manufacturing space and that really signals commitment and investment um, to, to go in that direction. And I guess like one of the things I wanted to sort of switch topic too much that, that I was thinking about the other day and, and right, I don't have the answer to this, but I think it was Renault in particular said that by 2030, 90% of their vehicles were going to be electric, right? 
Uh, and that's that's yeah, I mean that's an amazingly impressive statistic. But then I started to kind of think about it the other way around. Like you know, if I'm in charge of Renault and the profitability of Renault, like let's say that means that the amount of combustion engines they make is going to drop by ninety percent, like between now and twenty thirty, right? How can they make those profitable? Is there any way of like cutting your production levels by that kind of volume down ninety percent and still make those cars in a profitable manner? And I guess where that might leads me to believe is like once you get to that point, like probably sooner, surely you stop making the combustion engine altogether, right? Like it's not going to profitable. It's not going to get any more profitable. There's not going to be any more growth for it. You know, the combustion engine is not going to suddenly rebound in the 2030s, right? I just wonder if, you know, there's a sort of tipping point coming there, which is driven by the automotive companies where it's just no longer profitable anymore. Uh, and I guess that's another reason why I just think, you know, the battery. We can debate whether we're fully electric by 2030, 2040, 2050, never. But, you know, I think there's a critical mass coming in terms of investment and in terms of scale that just means that that particular segment is kind of irreversible. Is that across the board, geographically speaking, or are there some regions that, you know, maybe it's still early enough in the game for hydrogen to win market share, or hydrogen vehicles to win market share? Okay, that was for me, is it? I mean, I my initial reaction to your question is, of course, there's areas of the world that won't go fully electric because, uh, you know, they're developing economies and it's going to take a long time before they're affordable. And that's where the combustion engine will hang around. Whether or not that's a window of opportunity for hydrogen, I am not sure. And I'd love to hear Alex's thoughts on that. Well, you know, I'll just mention that a, a fuel cell vehicle is a electric vehicle, right? They're fully electric um, vehicles. So uh, it just has a hydrogen, you know, tank that provides some electrical impulse to the rest of the car. And they all have a battery in them, right? So it's not like, you know, going fuel cell vehicle, like lets the battery industry off the hook. But anyway, you know, these, I, I love Sam's idea, you know, like in the utility world, we're always worried about this, like utility death spiral as people may potentially decrease couple from the grid using self-generation. And, and it sounds like kind of the same exact idea, right? You have dwindling sales volumes, the same fixed costs, and your, your margins just get shot because of it. And there's some regulatory drivers to pile on too, right? In the United States, we have these zero emission vehicle portfolio standards that California has led the way with. And if you sell a good sized Tesla or a fuel cell electric vehicle, you get four credits and four credits are worth $20,000. And those $20,000 are made up for by increasing the price of internal combustion engine cars, right? And so there is this uh, headwind against, against internal combustion engines from the regulatory side. And then there's the same type of dynamic working with the low carbon fuel standard and the renewable fuel standard, right? And so if you have dwindling volumes of these fossil-based fuels and they're being used to alleviate the added price of lower carbon fuels, then eventually uh, the price of those fuels will go up and people will uh, move away from them because it's no longer in their economic interest, right? And I like Sam's idea about, you know, I don't know if it's 2030 or 2040 or 2050, but if the way we've regulated everything pans out, then, you know, that's the conclusion that we get to, at least in the United States and Europe and Japan and South Korea. And, you know, that's just the, the path that we're going down is seeing, you know, how bumpy of a ride will that be? <laughs> I should disclose that I have two uh, internal combustion cars and, and I'm not 
quickly moving into hydrogen or electric vehicle just because both cars are reliable. Well, I'll do a full disclosure too. I have a hybrid and I almost never charge it. You know, it's uh, it's (laughs) a city, right? It's just so much easier to gas it up. Well, I have one car between me and my family. It is, dare I say it, diesel, very old. And we barely use it. I don't know about you guys, but this new life we live, like I, my wife works, I can almost see it out the window. I work just here. My kids go to school like about 500 meters over there. You know, we leave the place where we live like a couple of times a week. Yeah. So I think, you know, lifestyles and mobility habits have changed so much. That's the other thing that we're not talking about here, right? Well, so we're going to decarbonize by asking people to change their behaviors and drive. <laughs> well, I didn't, ask, very American. I didn't ask for this particular change. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, but I have a conversation later this week with our mobility team to talk exactly about these changes in behaviors in terms of, you know, what, what is working from home done for us in terms of thinking about mobility and i mean at least for me i've had to replace my battery because i don't start my car enough i've got very low mileage on my car but i don't run it often enough yeah well um, that's why i sold our other car <laughs> smart <laughs> i'm new to the whole car ownership thing so i've been driving around like a madman and everyone's at home so the roads are open right i get where i want to go super fast there you go uh well sorry a bit of a segue there i guess you know again looking at the technologies i mean in terms of competing for capital i mean what i can see from you know where i said which isn't as close as you guys but neither technology seems to be short capital right now that if 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 i've got a battery idea i can raise as much money as i want and i've got a hydrogen idea is that true I, i guess first from the perspective of the private sector and then you know second from the perspective of government support well i would say on the battery side of things because this is linked you know as i got as i sort of hinted at earlier because this is linked to the electrification of transport and because the volkswagens the porsches the bmws the audis the general motors the stellantis all want to be at the forefront of this you know it is the transformation of their industry it's a transformation that has never happened to their industry on this scale someone said in a presentation i watched the other day it was you know compared it to the introduction of the car over the horse and cart right and Mm -hmm. because they're so heavily invested there's so much private capital coming from those companies i don't see you know availability as cap of capital as a as an issue and then tied to that, you've also got this push for localization of the technology, you know, because of COVID, because of supply chain tensions, because of geopolitical tensions, because today 90% of batteries are made in China. There's a lot of funding available and investment available to help bring battery manufacturing like more locally. You know, there's things about this in some of the like Build Back Better regulation that's potentially coming in the US. Like the British government just put a few hundred million into a local battery manufacturer called British Volt um, here in the UK. Uh, there's similar funding available in Europe, like aimed at building battery manufacturing within Europe as well. Uh, whether it's for energy security or whether it's for geopolitical reasons uh, or whether it's just purely for logistics, because by the way, transporting lithium-ion batteries around is pretty complicated because they're flammable. So. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I don't see a shortage of capital, at least for the battery manufacturing space. When you get into other sort of slightly different areas, like using batteries in the grid, 
building a battery project that's going to be participating in multiple different grid services and things like that, then people are, well, I mean, there's potentially a bit more money to be made there, but people look at that a little bit more closely as to whether they want to invest their capital there because it's a pretty high risk. Yeah, let me come back to, I do want to get there. Let me come back to that. But I guess before we do, Alex, on the on the mobility side and hydrogen application, same answer from you, that no shortage of capital, whether government or private. Well, I mean, so uh, it's a little different, right? So the, the the battery electric vehicle and Tesla has like revolutionized the world and like, you know, one of the largest companies in the world right now and the world's richest, largest, ma- richest man. So, <laughs> largest um, man. yeah, so, you know, it, it hasn't been that dynamic. Right. You've seen money flow into it uh, and you've seen those like special acquisition purpose mm-hmm. companies coming out. And uh, so there, there's a little bit more speculation in the hydrogen area, I would say, uh, a little bit like frothier of a bubble. But, um, you know, it seems like there's a fair amount more pure player. Or, well, let me just back up a second. It, it it just is a little bit more speculative. And so the capital is available, but the risk is higher. Does hydrogen, in, in, in a sense, have it all a, a, you know, Sam mentioned some of the geopolitical concerns with what 90% of battery production coming from China. Is hydrogen getting more attention, more positive attention on the energy security grounds of saying, well, hydro- the, the battery market's already owned by China. I'd rather um, throw my money at hydrogen from a yeah, government so perspective. There's a couple of different elements there. So on the on the material side, you know, you're you're sourcing platinum group metals from like South Africa as opposed to specialty metals from the Congo, right? So there's a different type of risk for sourcing of materials, uh, and you can make arguments about which is better or which is worse. There's a little bit more of. Uh, well, you know, so you can make hydrogen in multiple pathways, right? And so there is more regional dynamism because different countries that have either green or blue or both uh, resources uh, can make hydrogen, right? And so the idea in places like Europe is that potentially you could move away from uh, their current gas suppliers if they were able to produce renewable gas from their electrolytic processes uh, and therefore you know, take advantage of their North Sea wind. So there's, you know, these political overlays to it, but we're still in early days, right? So it's like pre-positioning and, and, you know, stating strategic outlines or goals as opposed to really being able to affect in brass tacks what's happening on the ground. Okay. So, Sam, back to the uh, power generation question or the uh, utility perspective, I mean, is, is that... If if there is a somewhat of maturity on the battery side of thing and, and mobility is the next space batteries at residential or utility level, is that the next leg of growth? Uh, I mean, all of these sectors are growing. Um, sure. It's just the electric vehicle space is growing at a is a much bigger market, right? The actual growth rates are comparable. Um, but I guess what I was hinting at is that we also see a lot of investment and a lot of capital, even like. SPACs, as you just mentioned, Alex, um, in the grid storage space. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is only roughly 5% of battery demand over the next 10 years, um, but it's still a very interesting market for investment because um, you know, there's a lot of companies out there building battery projects that sit on the grid. And it's an increasingly accepted technology, and would say now mainstream technology, for doing a lot of things from frequency regulation to capacity to resource adequacy 
uh, in one of the main another revenue stream now is arbitrage, right? So you're just buying, topping up all of those things that I've just mentioned with buying power when it's cheap and selling it when it's high. And you know when you've got then other company companies sort of layered on top of that that provide the what we call EMS energy management system, which is incredibly complex, super intelligent software that is making decisions about which of these different things to do to optimize the revenues of a battery. So there's a lot of companies developing in the space and there's a lot of interesting business models developing in the space. So we see you know, acquisitions, investments in companies, investments in projects, projects raising capital like, to get built. There's a lot of things happening in that space as well. Is the bigger play residential battery backup rather than utility battery backup? I mean, the, I would say there's a lot more investment going into the utility space. That's certainly a bigger market in terms of volumes of batteries. Residential is a slightly more simple business model, right? The consumers buy the battery, they put it in their house, collect it to solar typically. And, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in the US and a few other regions, really the, the main reason they're doing that is for reliability. Like what right. we see now is people increasingly valuing reliability as grid outages become, unfortunately, increasingly common in the US at least. I mean, I can't remember the last time the power went off here in the UK, but you know, what we what we read about and what we hear about from our friends overseas is that, you know, it's becoming increasingly common due to weather events, fires in the case of California. And now people are willing to go and spend several thousand dollars to have a battery to go with their solar. Uh, and then, you know, when you have outages that last potentially days, then you've got reliability You've got some power, right? Which people kind of becomes a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That if if the more people get battery backup at the residential level, the less incentivized they are to support reliability at the utility level. Yeah, it kind death of goes down that death spiral that Alex mentioned. Uh, death spiral. It sounds extremely uh, dramatic, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a sort of I'm not sure what the opposite of utopian is, but um, sort of I. Yeah, dystopian. Um, I guess it depends whether you, which side of the coin you are, right? But there's this uh, idea that, yeah, eventually everyone disconnects from the grid and the grid doesn't exist and you all live in harmony and generate your own solar power. And I don't know what you do about your electric vehicle at that point, but um, yeah. you buy a very large field with lots of solar panels, I guess. <laughs> well, so I think that the, the home storage is going to be a huge opportunity as people think about decarbonizing their home heating systems, right? So heating can be a tremendous amount of energy and uh, it's it's pretty, you know, coincident, right? We all want to heat our houses in the same time. We all get up around the same time in the morning and turn on our lights and get a shower or whatever. And it really is hard to electrify all of that and get all of that energy from the grid. And And so uh, as we move down that path, people will think more and more about, well, what are my opportunities for having a battery on site? And and the reliability issue is huge. And people like having their electronics operate at, you know, all the time and having a battery makes it seamless these days. You know, it really you can't even tell when they kick on or off. Um, And so I think this type of distributed energy resource is going to be more and more common in a more decarbonized future. And you can even see use cases for hydrogen and other much more expensive types of energy carriers uh, just based off of the constraints that the grid would have in very cold climates. Right. And so uh, I I think that market is going to be enormous over time and we're just going to see it unfold over the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years. 
I was just going to say one of the interesting things that's happening there, though, is that we are also seeing the development of generally and broadly called a virtual power plant, which is where you put, um, you kind of take all these individual home batteries and you aggregate them together. An aggregator like takes responsibility and then they actually use those batteries as a fleet to support the grid as well. And you know, they can potentially do things like provide capacity or have a capacity contract with a local utility. Um, so these home batteries can actually serve to help the grid as well or generate additional revenues from these grid services that can then be kind of passed through savings to the consumer as well. So there's some kind of interesting things happening there in certain regions around the world. Who owns the battery in, in that situation? Is it the residential uh, owner or are they leasing it from somebody that's managing it for a neighborhood? There's different models. Um, there are some cases where people have tried to, uh, the, the aggregator or the sort of central operator would own, retain ownership of the batteries and kind of lease them to the homeowner in some way or there's or there's other ways of doing it, like the homeowner retains ownership of the battery and then the aggregator operates it and keeps a proportion of the of the saving, if you like, and also shares it. There's a lot of different models for it. I wouldn't say there's a you know one particular model that's winning out there. It's a fairly niche thing right now, to be honest. It's not something that's being done a lot. Alex, how about hydrogen on the residential or utility side? Is, is there in Maybe I'm missing it, but I'm not seeing too much discussion there in the way that I have seen for batteries. Well, it's 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 out there, right? So currently the electric system is basically designed to meet the peak in the summertime afternoon, right? We all have our air conditioners running and uh, that's when electricity grids generally peak. And so you can electrify a lot of home residential heating before you build out that wintertime peak until it hits grid constraints. So I've done numbers for like New York and basically by like 2030, uh, once they've electrified eight to 10% more of their residential houses, uh, they'll be at their grid constraint. And so then they'll start needing to think about, well, for every house that we electrify, we need to get new generating capacity. We need new distribution equipment. We need new transmission equipment. And so uh, very few uh, states in the nation have already started thinking about it. It's like New York. I think Massachusetts has a nod to it. And then there's other couple of other states that have uh, biomass as a backup fuel. And so, uh, you know, it's a problem that will arise or at least something that will come up in the next five to 10 years as people again start thinking, well, you know, we need to, to alleviate uh, the, the congestion on the grid at times of peak demand. And at that point in time, uh, having a bottle of, you know, flammable gas on site that you could put into a furnace or a fuel cell uh, could be quite valuable and would be something that, again, like Sam was saying, would be an avoided cost that you could pass on to the consumer. Okay. So looking kind of where we are today and, and trying to, to, you know, think forward, you know, from, from both of you here, you guys both mentioned SPACs or special purpose acquisition corporations that I think as we speak are in a bit of free fall uh, in terms of stock market valuations and EVs have been hot, hydrogen names have been hot. Where do you see things going? You know, <clears throat> there seems to be still enough support that, that all the, the stuff that we hear that they, despite being a lot of these, uh, what are they called, pre-revenue companies or something, you know, being in the clean tech space, that there's still a lot of support for the ideas. Uh, governments are financing it uh, or, or at least acting as a, a lender or a VC type for a lot of this. Yeah, Alex, maybe to start with you, you know, are batteries and hydrogen going to grow 
together and compete for the, the same types of markets, or are we going to see more niche application where hydrogen owns, you know, the majority of this application while traditional batteries own, you know, the, the other side? I think we'll see more niche uh, opportunities. And, you know, I think that batteries are a little more mature, right? So uh, hydrogen has a little bit more headroom for growth. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, there's there's more speculation there too, right? And so uh, if you choose the right, you know, SPAC in the hydrogen space, you know, the sky's the limit, but you might choose 10 wrong ones too. And so there's, there's that downside. Um, so anyway, I don't know, does Sam have any thoughts about how it works on the battery side? There's been some incredible, well, how do you measure the success of a SPAC? Right? I, uh, this is something that <laughs> I struggle to get my head around. Um, the, there's been some extremely successful SPACs in the battery, well, I say battery, energy storage space, right? Because there is some technologies out there that are trying to do energy storage without batteries, like mechanical storage, for example unbelievable valuations huge amounts of capital raised uh you know the sort of amounts of capital that maybe is a game changer and allows these companies to actually go and contend like as potential mainstream technologies in the sector and but yeah like obviously it's been a roller coaster in terms of stock price for them and i don't know quite how that's going to play out particularly with the current tensions that are on stock prices right now but i'm not really sure i've kind of answered your question there i i guess the the bottom line is whether it's SPACs or whether it would whatever it might be there's going to be capital coming like to the space will they contend for that capital no i i tend to think that these are both technologies that have got clear roles in the sort of future energy system, and um, they're both going to play a very important role. In fact, if you don't mind me just kind of taking a slight divergence, we've been doing some work looking at how they actually have a very clear role of working together. Mm -hmm. um, because, and I'll just mention this quickly, right, all of this hydrogen is only clean and green if we make it in a low-carbon way. And, and one of the pr ways that is commonly considered for doing that would be um, producing green hydrogen, which is basically electrolysis and you power that electrolysis with wind and solar. But um, what we've been looking at is the role of batteries in, in that, because if you're going to buy a big electrolyzer and spend a lot of money on electrolyzer, you want to be running it basically 24-7 if you possibly can. And with wind and solar, that becomes really quite difficult because you only get wind when the wind blows and you only get solar when the sun shines. And so we've been looking at the economics of actually adding a battery to you know, balance out that wind and solar and make it a, a more stable and firm generator. And then, then you can produce a lower cost of hydrogen in some situations that we modeled and analyzed. So actually, the two technologies are essentially working closely together. Then. You're using batteries to make hydrogen, and the both technologies are kind of interlinked in that way. All right. So the market's big enough for all of it. I mean, the market needs both of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the 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 challenge of decarbonization is so huge that you know you need you need everything, right? And so there's going to be a, a lot of opportunity for both technologies. All right, that is a a good optimistic way to leave it, I think. And uh, those who are, are listening and can't see our cameras here, that Sam's daughter has also walked in the room, and maybe she will be the ultimate beneficiary of this decarbonized decarbonized world. <laughs> and maybe get handed down Sam's low mileage car for not commuting uh, to and from work. Well, I need to be clear, that car has not got many miles or many years left in it. 
All right, guys. Well, thanks so much, and I uh, I hope to do this again soon. Well, thanks for having us. I'd love to. Thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.